Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. My co-host, Tina Bruder and I are kicking off the season with a series titled Lessons Learned from Mars Hill, where we'll be hosting a roundtable discussion with our panel, Alicia Crumpton, Ben Brewster, and Kevin Holland. Our goal is to discuss themes arising from Christianity Today's The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Podcast. Our intent is to discuss some common issues that may arise within congregational life and leadership cultures. We recognize the Mars Hill story to be an extreme example of what can happen. We also understand there's a broad spectrum between healthy congregations and or leadership cultures and those which are toxic. We also acknowledge the various degrees of experiences, some which are extreme and others more subtle or nuanced. All in all, we wish to address some common threats to healthy congregational life and to the unity within the body of Christ. These episodes are designed to be forward-looking, positive, and practical. In each episode, we will discuss the topic or problem, explore how it might relate within our own shared heritage, and then focus on Christ-centered solutions toward greater spiritual health and well-being. In the past, we limited episodes to about 30 or 35 minutes. This series will go a little longer each episode. As we engage in this discussion, we encourage listeners to refrain from diagnosing or labeling people or groups of people, and we pray that this series will be a blessing and a tool that moves us all toward congregational cultures of grace, mercy, and shalom. We understand that some listeners may be unfamiliar with the Mars Hill podcast, so before we get started, we'd like to play the intro to Mars Hill episode one for the purpose of context, and then we'll be back with our panel for the discussion. Did I pledge my entrance? Why are we not looking at the deep-seated reasons for this? For the purpose of progress. Mark just came and said, if you plant a church, he's going to tear it down brick by brick. To priest or prophet. We have a culture of church members who would prefer a narcissist leading a church. Playing God in the process. How dare you! you think you are? Was I chasing There's very real chronic trauma that comes from serving within systems like this. There's a few guys, but if I wasn't going to end up on CNN, I would go Old Testament on them. You know, a lot of pastors get fired. Driscoll got fired for being an asshole. Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of one church that grew from a handful of people to a movement and then collapsed almost overnight. It's a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma, problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America. And yet, it's also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. Well, I want to begin by introducing our panel that will be joining us uh, for the weeks to come in this series. Kevin Holland is with us, and Kevin serves as the senior pastor of Turning Point Church in Los Angeles. 
He has a Master of Arts in Christian Ministry from Harding School of Theology in Memphis. He's the host of the Breathing Room podcast. His wife, Tracina, serves alongside him as a women's ministry leader in their church, and together they mentor church leaders in Los Angeles as well as in other parts of the United States. They've got two daughters, Tori and Kennedy, a son-in-law, uh, Tori's husband, Derek Hinton, and a newborn granddaughter, Mia Love Hinton. So we're glad to have Kevin with us. Uh, ben Brewster is also with us. Ben has served with the Airline Drive Church of Christ in Boiser City, Louisiana, since 1999. Ben was one of our first guests on the Common Ground Unity podcast. Uh, he authored a book, Torn Asunder, The Civil War and the 1906 Division of the Disciples. He's married to Mindy. They have two daughters, Hannah and Angela, their son, Drew, and son-in-law, Zach. Ben received his MA in church history from Cincinnati Christian University and undergraduate degrees from Ohio Valley University and Oklahoma Christian University. Then we have Alicia Crumpton with us. Alicia is a PhD. She's married to John, and together they're passionate about supporting public art efforts, local businesses, and leadership education. She serves as a management consultant within the utility sector where she focuses on strategic planning, performance management, operations, optimization, and leadership coaching. Johnson University asked her to design a fully online PhD in leadership studies, a process which facilitated a temporary transition into the academic world for her. Generally qualitative and eclectic, she tends to explore such themes as transformation, spirituality, creativity, and imagination. She's got a forthcoming book in 2022 to be looking for on architecture and leadership, which explores the built environment's role in shaping organizational context. As I mentioned, she has her PhD. It's in leadership studies from Gonzaga University, an MA in engaged humanities and the creative life from Pacifica Graduate Institute, and an MS in information science from the University of Michigan, as well as a BA in education from Lincoln Christian University. Alicia, by the way, serves on the boards of Common Grounds Unity, the Stone Campbell Journal, and World Convention. So what a great panel we have. Uh, we're excited to be with you as a group over the coming weeks. And I'm being joined by my co-host, Tina Bruner, who's going to set us up for this first segment in this series. Welcome, Tina. Good to be together again. It's great to be here. And this is a really important series that we're entering into. The uh, episode today is on the tension between transformation and toxicity, which uh, really is displayed in this Mars Hill podcast, but I think all of us can find um, themes of this in a lot of our own church experiences. So Kevin Holland, would you just open us with kind of an overview of what the podcast was and why you feel like it's relevant for us to address the lessons we can learn? Sure. I'd be happy to, Tina. It's great to see everybody. Um, I was uh, have been a pastor here for decades in Los Angeles and one of the leading megachurches that um, people around the country and around the world learned from and uh, were influenced by was the Mars Hill Church. Mark Driscoll, a uh, very charismatic and effective pastor, wrote, uh, you know, author, very prolific uh, speaker. Uh, he helped shape along with a number of other pastors in the 20, 2000s and 2010s a lot of uh church practice and was looked at, they were looked at as one of the, the industry leaders as it were. And so uh, had a remarkable growth and all kinds of innovative church plannings and a, a, a huge attendance. And so when this podcast came out, it was really significant because it showed that though uh, Mars Hill had a reputation for incredible success and uh, innovation and God moving in that church, there was also a dark side or a shadow side that ended up being its undoing. And the dynamics there, I felt like, uh, would reflect on dynamics that we all can experience in different churches. Before we begin the discussion with our panel, let's listen to a clip from the Mars Hill podcast. 
Ed Stetzer is a researcher and missiologist at Wheaton College and a leading thinker about American evangelicalism. In the earliest days of Mars Hill, he worked for the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, studying, supporting, and developing resources for church planting. He was pretty involved at Mars Hill as someone who coached and mentored Mark, preached in the church, and served in a variety of ways with Acts 29, including serving on their board. I saw stunning life change. Um, there's a reason that 10,000 plus people engaged there, and there's reasons why it ultimately imploded. And those reasons didn't always become simultaneously apparent. I think that's what people kind of assume, that you'd see all the the good and the bad simultaneously. No, I think there were some people who were seeing the bad because they were living it and they were experiencing it. And and I, I know a lot of people who have left the faith, people who are pastors are now not Christians mm -hmm. because of their experience in those contexts. And then I know countless numbers of people who, who were just in lives that were just a mess and were redeemed by the power of the gospel and changed at Mars Hill and 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 see, you know, have moved from there, you know, now see some, but, but again, it's it's, you could have lived as people did and had very different experiences and very different impact on your life, depending upon what part of the orbit you were in or not in at Mars Hill. That contradiction is the center of the Mars Hill story. Stunning life change and stunning pain. Radical transformation and wounds so deep they drove people from the church or from the faith altogether. And the connection between those two realities is critical. Those who were walking wounded after their time at Mars Hill wouldn't have those wounds if they hadn't first experienced something profound at the church. And in a twisted way, that pain wouldn't have been tolerated over the years if there hadn't been a sense of kingdom advancement. In, in this particular series, Ed Stetzer, who's well-known in the world of church leadership and church growth, in, in that clip, we heard him say, I saw stunning life change. There's a reason why 10,000 people engaged there, and there's a reason why it ultimately imploded. And there's those reasons, and those reasons didn't always become simultaneously apparent. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that quote, if you will, panel. Well, I can jump in and just say that the the sort of dichotomy, the combination of those two experiences, when I remember hearing that, and I, I heard Ed Stetzer speak years ago at a conference, but I just thought, I don't know that I'd ever heard those two uh, descriptions of a church experience side by side as one in one environment and happening simultaneously. But it did resonate because uh, I've had experiences in the past in churches of which I've been a part where two things can be true at once. So just the acknowledging that those two realities can be simultaneously true, I felt that uh, was enlightening. And, and in some ways it was just uh, empowering to have someone say it out loud so then I can look at, oh, that's what I experienced X numbers of years, years ago at this place. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was significant. I would jump in and, and add that within any, any human context, we can have the both and. Um, we tend to think of leadership and the, the way I talk about leadership is uh, akin to how Barbara Kellerman described it when she, she spoke of it, rather than a, a position or a single person, we're talking about a web where um, the, the persons with the positional power and the followers and the context all work dialogically to create what I think of as the, the leadership climate or the leadership context. And and, and I think that within those contexts, we can see the both end playing out, the toxicity and the transformation. And that contributes at times to what can almost be a justification 
if if we're seeing good, the bad, you know, and I use this example, it's a crazy example, but it's the drunk uncle that comes for Thanksgiving and we go, oh, that's just Joe Blow. He, you know, he always does that. Just ignore him. And so we, we as a, as a body can, can sort of justify behaviors and, and sort of set them aside because on the same breath, they're doing good things. Somebody give us a little bit of a definition, a working definition of toxic leadership or toxicity in a culture of leadership. What, what are we getting at here? Well, toxicity, there's, there's been a great deal written about it. Um, one of the better from the leadership perspective books is The Allure of Toxic Leaders by Jean Littman Blumen. And, you know, there's a suite of behaviors often associated with toxicity, but clearly one of the, the effects are probably more noticeable. And it's this idea that there's harm to the organization, you know, leaving followers worse than they than where they found them, consciously feeding followers illusions, playing to base fears, misleading followers, and then sort of maliciously setting constituents against one another. Um, I like the way that uh, Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger talked about in their book, A Church Called Tav, they talked about how never underestimate, and they're citing David Brooks here, but never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gr- gradually transform who you are. So there's this idea that the leadership context, uh, the leader, the follower, and the context can work against the people or within the people to ultimately change behaviors. You know, in the in the fallout of, say, Nazi Germany, some of the, the interviews that were done with the people who followed orders were we were just following orders. They were sort of overcome with the culture and the context in a way that made sense at the time. But only in hindsight were they able to reflectively consider what had happened and and that there was indeed toxicity and transformation sort of a long-winded discussion, but it's a really a complex topic uh, with, with, uh, to consider. Why do you think that um, for the church, for um, organizations uh, that are built on biblical principles, why is it uh, so easy or is it easy for the toxic or dark parts of of our organizations, how, how do they stay hidden? Like who enables that? What, what, what is in place that, that keeps that perpetuated? Kevin Holland? Well, it was, um, the, there were several, I think 12 or 14 episodes, I can't remember, but multiple episodes of the Mars Hill podcast, and they interviewed so many scores of people. And one of the things that was repeated was that there was uh, an either spoken or unspoken um, conviction or, or thought that the ends justify the means. And so all of us, we, we want to see our churches thrive. We want to see members added. We want to see churches planted. We want to see mission work done. And if that is happening in an environment, we could say, well, there are some untoward behaviors. There are some toxic behaviors. But as long as these ends are being produced, this is the cost of those ends being reached. And so the ends justifying the means is something that I think uh, that uh, has would be in play there. Yeah, I think Kevin's spot on with what he just said. Um, when when we think we're achieving a measure of success, we tend to to overlook things that we normally wouldn't overlook. Um, when you talk about a winning culture in sports, um, everyone gets along when the team's winning and, and we look over the faults of the coaches or teammates. And then you get into a losing streak and you're like, wait a second, what's going on here? This is really bad. Someone should do something about it. And I, I think we find that in toxic cultures um, with leaders who crave control for the purpose of self-serving ends. Alicia, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that, uh, dare I say, a concern that that sort of started niggling in the back of my brain 
as we listen to the, the podcast is our obsession with the concept of leadership within the church as a construct. And um, again, I'm, I'm thinking here of, I've just finished reading this uh, Church Called Tov by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, and they, they said this, and I'm quoting here, powerful pastors become associated too easily with God in the minds of the congregation. And so we, we revere our pastors in a way that um, maybe, maybe is not, maybe is something we need to explore in terms of what we're doing. And when we sort of project onto the pastor um, larger than life qualities, <laughs> they are not God. Uh, but, but, but the concept of leader has become so idolized within our culture generally and I've seen it emerge in the, within the church culture in a way that, that maybe we need to reconsider. So it seems that one of the things coming out of this is that, that as Kevin referenced earlier, uh, it, it's true that both things can happen. You can have toxicity and you can have transformation. And maybe this goes toward the fact, Kevin, I think you referenced this term as well, that, you know, so often we think in terms of the ends justifying the means. Uh, why are churches particularly susceptible to that that way of thinking? Is it because we're so results driven, or what are some of the things that contribute to that mentality? Well, I can say speak uh, for that that we, um, as you know, many churches in the United States, and some even that I think have had an incredibly positive influence teach a lot about leadership development as a part of spiritual development and as a part of church growth and church development. And so um, I think that we, we already are wired to want to win, to be successful. Uh, you can look at um, the admonitions and the whole idea or the concept of fruitfulness, bearing fruit, being fruitful um, from Jesus' teachings uh, in John 15 and throughout and misapplications of those. Um, we, I think, speaking for myself, I come from a, a church where the idea of fruit is evidence of God's working. And so if if I'm in a healthy church or if I'm in a church where, where God's presence and spirit are really working, then that's going to be evident by outward signs of, of fruit and growth and numerical additions and so forth and so on. And so I think that's why we're susceptible is we, we are wired to think that, okay, outward results are you validate God's presence and working in my life. And then contrastingly, if those things aren't there, then they're perhaps God is, I'm doing something wrong or God's not with me or we're not the, the church that uh, we should be. Does that suggest that we're perhaps measuring the wrong things, that the way we measure, quote, measure ourselves, that that's a, a sort of a business construct that we've ad adapted or adopted into the church as, you know, they, they call it the butts in the seats or the number of baptisms or what have you. Does that, are we really sort of suggesting that maybe there's other things that we ought to be considering as a measurement? That's a good question, and perhaps it gets at how we define the fruit that God's looking for. Um, what, what, what would you all say to the, the, the question of why are the means as important or perhaps even more so than the ends that we see? And that's a question of ethics. Um, Jesus taught us that our motivation for what we do, what we do is important. So it, it's never just the end result that's ultimately important. Um, the means are important. Are we are we pursuing um, a Christ-transforming uh, lifestyle? Is that the culture that we've created? Um, because we know that we, you, you can fill a, a building, a room full of people. You can get people there, but that doesn't mean any substantive substantive change is taking place. And uh, I, I think 
when all we're looking at is the end results. Oh, we had a full crowd Sunday. Oh, our, we said we have a record contribution. We're way over budget uh, giving wise. Uh, we tend to overlook the importance of ethics and our motivations and why we're doing what we're doing. I think we can also ignore even Paul's admonition in Galatians that you reap what you sow because the reaping is after the fact, often, you know, the results of a toxic culture or ends justifying the means aren't seen until later on. So if you, if, if I'm motivated by a short term outcome, I'm much going to be much more tempted to cut corners or take shortcuts or whatever, you know, uh, how, how do I, the difference between influencing people toward a goal in a spiritual way versus manipulating them in an unspiritual way, because the latter can, can get people somewhere. And I'm reminded of a, one of my, I hope I really <laughs> don't mess this up, but of course, uh, MLK, there's just like a thousand quotes for every occasion. But I remember, uh, I think it was in a Christmas around a Christmas time sermon he gave where he talked about, um, you, let's see, what is it? Destructive, uh, um, destructive means cannot produce constructive ends. And he talked about something like the, the means are preexistent in the ends. And so obviously talking about a different topic, but just the idea that you can't produce something constructive if the way you're doing it is destructive. Short term, maybe, but long term, not, which is, I think, what you saw at Mars Hill. Unless you jump in there. Well, I would just add that, you know, what is that, that parable about the boiled frog? That if it's if it's slow and long over time, the frog doesn't even know that he or she's being boiled, and that the the the, the danger of toxic cultures is that it's only and Kevin, you mentioned that it's only in the hindsight that we can even figure out what happened, and and along with that, often sadly, is trauma and and PSD, PTSD experienced by those who participated in a way that um, we thought we were doing good, but in hindsight, reflectively, they realize that they've been boiled, <laughs> to use the frog analogy, which is kind of a goofy analogy, but it's what I came up with. Yeah. I hope one thing that we get to over this series is the way that in an unhealthy environment, isolation works and the way that like spiritual shaming, um, you know, it was so, there were so many really heartfelt uh, examples of both transformation and such deep pain. And I think that the lessons that we can learn, um, you know, like we've just talked about is that the traps that we can fall into and one um, thing that stuck out to me was, you know, what is it that draws us to people like a Mark Driscoll? Like that the kind of the celebrity of, of our spiritual leaders, what is it that makes that the thing that other churches want to emulate or that we want to hold that person up and kind of in a celebrity form? What did, what did you all think about that as you listened? the power of charisma. Um, I mean, here in Louisiana, we got a pretty colorful political history, uh, had some pretty infamous, uh, people occupy high positions in this state. And you look back on it hindsight and you wonder, well, how did this happen? And then you, you, I think we get caught up in the moment with a charismatic leader and, and the leader taps into something within us, a sense of belonging, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of purpose. And, and we, we go all in and, and sometimes that can blind us. I think it's just uh, human nature. We, we know that uh, as it's been said, so much rises or falls on leadership. So I think it's gifting. I think we, we are all are drawn to gifted people in whatever area because they can accomplish things that um, others can't. 
And so we all want to feel like we're making a difference. We all want to um, change the, the world and the way that we see uh, we, we need to, we, we, we have a desire to. One of the things I can speak to for sure, and that was mentioned a lot on the podcast, was the idea of uh, Mark Driscoll really calling this uh, young generation, really Gen X men in particular, who tend to be less, you know, churched as it were, uh, to a purpose, do something with your life. And so if you're dealing in, in many ways with a, a fatherless generation, like a generation of, of guys with father wounds, with absent or oppressive or whatever, then uh, a father figure, someone who, who, you know, calls you to be, uh, in, in a good sense, all that you can be and beyond your limitations and so forth. I think that's attractive. And in that, um, you know, if someone has a vision for you, you can end up overlooking the toxic effect that has on you. And you give people, uh, I've seen that happen where we give people more influence um, in our lives than is healthy because we we can de- develop a dependence on them, either un- even unwittingly where, you know, this per- and, and if you have a culture as, as we come from that it really hangs it hits hat on and really feel strongly about discipleship, obviously discipleship is key to uh, any church, healthy church life, but there can be an overemphasis on the influence of a human relationship and uh, the emphasis of an uh, inner uh, emphasis on the spirit. And I think that, I think that's where we can fall in that trap. I would add that, um, and I'm going to use this, this a big phrase for me, but it's this idea of the existential anxiety that we feel um, that there's something compelling about being associated with a noble vision and to be chosen to participate in that vision. And, and within we're already in a context when we're talking about our religious beliefs where we're thinking of ourselves in terms beyond the, the grave, so to speak. Um, and so to be within a church context that elevates all of those kinds of feelings of being chosen and feeling like that we're at the epicenter of meaning and purpose is is a is a environment that can be very compelling and and it's God ordained in Jesus name we're doing these things and we're seeing results and i think that's that's uh that's part of the the allure is that it it taps into all of those human emotions that we're feeling for meaning and purpose This hodl of Christianity is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In 1996, a young, brash pastor named Mark Driscoll planted Mars Hill Church in Seattle. I always tell people, I'm Irish. We have two emotions, pissed off and asleep. That's our spectrum. (laughs) By 2014, they'd grown into a church of nearly 15,000 people in 15 locations in four states. Fast forward, though, to January 1st, 2015, and Mars Hill was gone. In some ways, Mars Hill's story is like no other. But in others, it's a window into much that shapes the evangelical church in North America today. There's a body count of young pastors whose ability rose them to prominence before their character was ready for it. The prevailing justification for pretty much all the carnage that happened within Mars Hill was, hey, look at the fruit. What we see on platforms, on social media, on Sunday mornings, can often be a veneer hiding a culture that's much more complex and sometimes ugly underneath. He could demand absolute obedience, and he did. So you question him, you're out. You know, you're, if you're not with us, you're against us. And yet the ugliness gets tolerated because what's happening in a church like Mars Hill can be so stunning. I'm in the tank baptizing people. Like they were just coming in the clothes. It was overwhelming. We didn't have towels. We didn't have shirts. It was beautiful. And so then you're like, ah, you know, so I got yelled at in the meeting. But on the whole, pretty amazing week. You know, you served on a staff like this. You didn't really think it had an impact on you. But two years later, you find yourself in my office talking about a little bit of depression and a little bit of anxiety. And by the way, I have these constant headaches. And I'll say, well, 
that's trauma. It just felt like death. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. Let's shift into thinking about the ways, uh, in what ways the Restoration Churches are vulnerable or susceptible to toxic leadership. What do you guys think? I, I think we have a history of it. Um, you look through our background in 19th, 20th century, um, you have what Leroy Garrett called the editor bishops, uh, men who were editors of influential publications that that really drastically changed the landscape, whether it's um, David Lipscomb with the Gospel Advocate, Austin McGarry with the Firm Foundation, Isaac Eric with the Christian Standard, Benjamin Franklin with the American Christian Review, and there are so many others. Uh, and a lot of times what we find in looking throughout history that uh, some of what they did was based on personality clashes or based on uh, political ideologies conflicting with others, uh, the conflict between North and South and and where you came down as far as the Civil War. And all of these things serve to, to create um, less than, I think, pure motives, maybe. I, I don't think they were bad people, but I think um, what we saw was a creation of a toxic culture because where the first generation of leaders we had, the Campbells and Stone and Walter Scott, we saw an immense amount of humility of willing to 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 um, sacrifice for someone else or lay aside opinions for someone else. But in subsequent generations, particularly with our editor bishops, we didn't see that quite as much. I'm not a church historian, but I would, <laughs> but I would, I'm fascinated by leadership theory and the historical um, odyssey of, of the great man theory, which particularly posited that leadership was imbued to white males uh, within the United States context. And I want to be clear that it was a contextual assertion. And he wrote a famous article, uh, Thomas Carlyle wrote a famous article in the 1800s, I'm not sure the exact year, talking about uh, on heroes. And he directly associated white male leadership with um, uh, as ordained by God. And so it's curious to me how, how we have evolved as a church in thinking about pastor as leader and how our historical context within the United States, how that might have influenced our perceptions of leader that may have sort of ultimately contributed to some of the toxicity that we now see, particularly in articulation of gender roles and other, other factors about who can participate and who has a voice. I have a lot more questions and answers, but that's something that I'm thinking about these days in terms of how that's influenced restoration movement, Stone Campbell movement um, development over time. What are ways that we can within our different streams, and and I'm sure there's there's nuance to this discussion based upon kind of what stream of the Stone Campbell movement you come from. Our panelists, by the way, for our listeners, um, are each in different streams of our movement: ICOC, Churches of Christ, Christian churches. So, you know, maybe leadership and governance structures look a little different in each of those. How, how do we? Uh, create a culture that celebrates transformation, which we want to see, and yet has accountability structures in place. I think that's a, a that's a great question, but it's also a difficult one because it's it comes down to what you value most, and I think that. Um, it, let me speak for myself, coming from a campus ministry background, campus ministry culture, you're already in an environment. And, and you know, I, I've seen, by the grace of God, remarkable life change. And I think one of the great gifts of um, ICOC and my background is the emphasis on campus ministry, the emphasis on uh, reaching young people, and uh, of course, 
movements throughout history that have really significantly changed society often have begun uh, in that age and stage and in that environment. And I think um, there's an energy associated with that demographic. And so um, I think that we all know there is a certain amount of energy that has to be uh, in a leader to be effective in moving other people. So I think valuing that is important. But if if growth, if higher attendance, if a certain number of baptisms, if those things, if those outcomes are preeminent, then I don't, I don't think we, we can uh, really be successful. It, it's got to be uh, is is the health and the spiritual formation and transformation of the members is is that paramount? If that is paramount, then I think having that in the equation uh, helps us. It gives us a higher chance to get to um, a healthier ethic. But I think if if what we want is quote unquote production, then I, I think it keeps us from from getting to Kevin to where you were what you were talking about. I wonder if when, as we're talking about this, and as we listen to the Mars Hill podcast, there seemed to be either a lack of trust or a lack of submission to one another in the way that the elders and the staff related to one another. And so in our context, because I know there are some of our churches that are more pastor-led, there are some that are more elder-led, what are some ways that that trust can be built between whichever the tension that holds so that when something does come up that you can have accountability. I think one of the struggles in the churches of Christ, and that's where my background is, is um, uh, a lot of tension that can exist between an eldership and the preacher. And sometimes the eldership feels like it, well, it's their job to keep the pastor or the preacher in check. Oh, I almost said pastor. Whoops. Um, <laughs> and um, it would keep the preacher in check like he's the employee. And um, it creates tension because you have a, um, a, a minister who's received theological education training to do his job. And, and, and a lot of our elderships don't have people on it like that. And so you get this power struggle that takes place. And, um, and sometimes the preacher can become domineering. You know, we saw that in this, in this uh, podcast that we're talking about. Uh, But sometimes it's the eldership and, and you get in such a power struggle that, that humility is forgotten and um, not practiced. And, and really, when I think when the eldership and the or and the and the preacher and the ministry staff come together as one cohesive unit, uh, submitting themselves one another to one another out of reverence for Christ, I think you create a positive culture. I think that's great. Man. We just had a a podcast with uh, uh, Mark Nelson talking about reformation. And sort of the backbone of this concept of reframing our thinking is the idea of getting to know people and and hearing their stories. And I think that maybe, you know, I, guys, I'm a romantic idealist. (laughs) I, you know, I, I do like to sing Kumbaya and hold hands. But I just got to believe that we need to go back to what it means to live in communitas. How, what are those behaviors that we enact one to another that create spaces for hospitality and knowing one another and loving one another and having dialogue and hearing the stories of the people that, that we're in fellowship with and sharing meals together? And maybe that's just a romantic notion, but it seems to me that we just need to regroup. Um, I've heard lots of sermons. I mean, and I've been in churches that felt cold because there there was just power and leadership and dynamic and growth. And, and I'm like, where is the love here? And maybe it is just my romantic notions of a silly girl that thinks that, that at the root of it all, that God is about love. 
I I'm just that's just where I sit today. Well, let's let's transition this conversation a little bit here, because we've we've kind of laid out, you know, the the issue itself, tox, toxicity, transformation. Sometimes those two things exist together. H- how does it manifest itself among Stone Campbell churches? Well, in in different ways. I think ultimately, our interest is in getting to a place where it is, you know, the Jesus way of leading. And we've kind of touched on how maybe we're taking our models too much from the business world. Maybe we talk too much about power and authority far more than Jesus ever did, um, other than correcting bad models of it. So, so if we're to get to, you know, a, a more Christ-centered model of leading churches, uh, what, what are some things that we draw out of Scripture and out of the teachings of Jesus that help us get there to to come to a healthier place? Well, I think Kevin, one that comes to mind immediately in uh, Matthew twenty is recorded where Jesus, you know, the the um, the guys are asking to be on the right and left, and uh, actually, actually, that's from Mark, but where he calls them together and gives a contrast the the rulers of the Gentiles exercise authority and lord it over. They're into positional uh, relating to you based on your position, but not so among you. And I just think, you know, preaching to myself, um, emphasizing that. So so if if in my leadership team, elders and evangelists, pastors, whatever, if if you if we emphasize that ethic of not so among us, you know, the greatest will be the servant. But really having that, that's a value. That's a value that we want to have and we want to build in the church. And obviously we have different giftings. But if that is who, that's the model we, that the elders, the evangelists, the, the minister, we all aim for. Who, who's, who is out do, looking to outdo the other and serving? Who, um, you know, um, if I am a, an elder, I'm looking to empower. I'm looking to champion. I'm looking to build up. Uh, that let's say the evangelist in context and vice versa. And of course there's a kind of, to me, wouldn't it, if I know someone on, on our leadership team is, is um, has that sort of value, I'm going to, I, I think that would engender more organic accountability. I want to be accountable. I, I, it would, it would, I would think elicit more humility. So I just think emphasizing not so among us, this is how, the business community does it. This is so how the education, whatever. But here, let's have the ethic where the greatest is the servant, and 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 let's not not lord it over, but as a value, you know. Yeah, I think we start with Jesus. Um, Jesus interprets everything that we do. You know, He gave us the greatest commands, and and so everything we do should flow from a Christ-like attitude. What does Philippians two five say? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. And so we start with that, what Kevin was just talking about. Um, you know, here in Louisiana, we know a lot about cooking. We we know a lot about food. And, and the food here is magical. The roads are horrible, but the food <laughs> is amazing here. And so one of the our favorite things to cook here is gumbo. Well, what's the key to a good gumbo? You better get the roux right. Because if the roux's wrong, it doesn't matter what else you put in it. It's not going to be good. And I think it's the same. We start with Jesus. We 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 start with the Jesus ethic. And, and everything we do flows from that. I love your emphasis on food. You know, several years ago, I did a study on looking at hospitality. And what does that look like? And what are the tenets of it? And the surprise for me was how frequently food was brought up. I mean, everybody has to eat. And maybe that's a starting place is, is having communion together and reorienting ourselves to the cross collectively 
recognizing that we all have to eat and we're all in need of the of Jesus on the cross and, and resurrected. I think that's just a beautiful way to 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 level the field. We're stripped bare of titles and, and everything about what this earth brings when we're sitting at the foot of the cross. So we've had this impulse, perhaps, in, in our churches in different ways, manifested in, in the different streams, perhaps, in different ways, um, where we're very results-oriented. You know, what are the numbers that can appear in a box in a bulletin? Um, I think Alicia said it earlier, you know, uh, numbers of seats in the pews, contribution dollars, baptisms. What are the things that we should be counting? What are the results that Jesus was looking for? What what did he model, um, knowing that he cares about lost souls and people coming to Christ? W- w- what should churches look for as far as results flowing out of the ministry of Jesus? One of the things that we have uh, begun this year doing, and not that we are the poster children for the way to do it, but we are aware as a church that um, so much of what is emphasized in the New Covenant is the idea of maturity and, um, you know, the the idea that, uh, I'm reminded of Paul's, you know, teaching and admonishing everyone so that we can uh, present everyone as fully mature in Colossians. Actually, that's our theme. scripture for this year. And we're going through uh, Pete Cesaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. But the idea of what what should we measure? What is the maturity? And it's difficult. I think, you know, there it's less graspable (laughs) than (laughs) is some, a human being sitting in a chair or someone being baptized. But honestly, uh, someone said in our, in our fellowship, we put an emphasis on planting but we never really emphasized watering, the nobility of watering over a, over a generation of long-term growth and maturation. It just looks different. So I, I, I would say maturity. I th- think about Jesus uh, emphasizing that, uh, he, you know, do not be afraid. Um, all, all the times he, he uh, challenged his guys to not be afraid and to don't, to not worry. So, so in, among our membership and in our church, is there a general anxiety overall just, you know, about life or wherever things are going? Or do we see us growing in our, our faith and, you know, sort of confident trust and faith in God rather than being an anxious community? Do we see ourselves being a more uh, trusting community, a more peaceful community, you know, where Jesus, in this world, you're going to have trouble but I've overcome the world. I give you my peace. So is that being manifest in the members relationships? We're, we're trying to go after more of that, particularly in this season with all this disruption in in the past two years is, is trying to build that more into our members. And so that's something that comes to mind. for me. I think it's, uh, does, do our congregations reflect Jesus? Uh, I was thinking of, the least of these Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, um, do the least of these in our communities, do they see Jesus in us or, or do they look at our churches and see power struggles and politics and people that, that can't get along and everyone looking for an angle or do they see, do they see the servant leadership that, that Jesus has shown us and taught us and directed us to, to follow him in that regard? I would just add, you know, I, t- I taught at Johnson for 10 years, directing the PhD program, and <clears throat> something that I saw, the primarily working adults, 35 to 45 age group, the thing that I think was most commented on is how hungry people were for the spaces to, to be discipled, to grow. And so... The scripture that I've been carrying with me and in, in my practice and is, you know, Romans 12, 2, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
and emphasizing how do I, as a leader in the church or whatever context it is, create spaces for for God to show up and transform people's lives. Um, it sort of dovetails with what Kevin is talking about and Ben, and it's just, how do we do that? But that has to be the primary thing because we know that's what God most wants for each of us to grow in our understanding of who he is and in his likeness. As we wrap up this first week of this series, we want to end on a a positive note on trying to be forward thinking by um, looking back and seeing where we've done um, things better and where um, we have created those spaces. And so this way I want to share an example of where the church has modeled a, a Jesus way of, of being in the world. I'm glad you asked that. I like to tell stories and they're even better when the stories are true. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we've got some great moments in our history. And um, I, I was thinking back to the, the, the end of 1831 and going into 1832, uh, there was a meeting uh, in Lexington, Kentucky that involved uh, people who had associated themselves with Alexander Campbell. They were called the reformers. And then you had, people in the Kentucky area who had associated themselves with a preacher named Barton Stone, they, they simply went by the name Christian. And these two groups said so many similar things. Let's, let's go back to um, just the Bible. Let's do away with all these extra things and trappings that weigh people down when it comes to, to following Jesus. And, and let's just go back to the basics. Well, the two groups had never really come together before, but over the holidays in 1831, um, they came together, and there was a someone from the um, the Campbell group named Raccoon John Smith, and then of course Barton Stone was there, and several people made speeches. And in this moment, you, you think, you know, there's going to have to be some humility for these groups to come together. If there's one person that wants to be the man, um, this is not going to work. And there was such a tremendous outpouring of tenderness as people spoke. And Raccoon John Smith got up and spoke. And then Stone followed him. And there's this beautiful scene recorded in several histories of our movement uh, where Stone gave his hand, extended his hand to Raccoon John Smith. And it became this symbol of fellowship. They actually pledged their fellowship to each other. And the moments captured in stained glass on one of the windows at the Cane Ridge Meeting House, you can still go see today. So when I think of all the negative things in our history, I think about moments like that and the example that these leaders did in setting their egos to the side for the sake of unity. Wow, Ben, what a great account to kind of bring this podcast to a close on. I think all of us here would love to see a lot more hugging and handshaking going on and unity being built. And that takes a whole lot of humility. It, it, it takes a whole lot of emptying ourselves as Jesus did and leading our churches out of such uh, hearts of humility and building bridges to one another uh, out of such humility. The Common Grounds Unity podcast is designed with the idea that for the various streams of this movement, Uh, have a lot of good folks in them with hearts to follow and surrender to Jesus and to submit to one another. And we hope this series contributes toward that end. We're going to continue looking at um, some of the implications of the series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Next week, we're going to have this great panel back with us for another uh, episode. So we hope you've benefited from this one and We hope you'll join us for the ongoing conversation. Look forward to being with you again next week. And to our panel, look forward to being back with you. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. 
If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.